Blog Talk Radio. It's been a long road getting from there to here. It's been a long time, but my time is finally here. I can feel a change in the wind right now. Nothing's in my way. Jess Armine coming to you from, well, I guess what used to be the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine is now a subject of the Institute for Methylation and Bioindividualized Medicine. One of these days we'll get the name straight. (laughs) I hope you're all doing well tonight. I am very happy to be doing this show. Um, This is one of my favorite subjects, and um, I've done this a couple times before, and we always have thousands upon thousands of people listening or downloading because everybody wants to know how to read their genetic profile without losing your mind. Uh, Anybody who's uh, downloaded any of the uh, apps that are out there realize that uh, trying to realize it, I'm sorry, trying to research it yourself is tantamount to um, becoming psychotic. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, I know, I know, I'm in a silly mood tonight. Anyway, So I have a couple of announcements before we get going while everybody's uh, while everybody's getting together. Uh, you, the people who are in the chat room, I am by myself, so um, if you could hold your questions to the end, to the Q&A portion, I'll be able to see your questions, okay, um, because I'm going to have uh, the slides up while I'm doing this. I'd like to announce, um, we've announced several times before, okay, that we are doing a seminar uh, teaching seminar uh, on methylation and bioindividualized medicine. It is going to be in Philadelphia on January 17 and 18, 2015. And you can get further information at www.mabim.org. It is not just for healthcare providers. Uh, lay people will benefit from this. We will be recording it. We will be um, selling the recording. Uh, the entire course. Uh, We are in the process of doing webinars and other informational um, snippets. So uh, if you are interested, why don't you go to that website and uh, keep an eye on it once in a while. Uh, Next week, we're going to start a a series of having some pretty interesting people on. Next week, Mark Newman, the owner and president of Precision Analytical Consulting and Laboratory, will be on. He is the uh, creator of the new hormone testing uh, called Dutch, 
and uh, we've been using it a lot. It's very um, it's very exact. It's um, excellent for uh, your healthcare providers to help completely understand what's going on. And uh, he is a recognized expert and international speaker, not like me, I just babble, in the field of hormone testing. He's assisted many laboratories in developing novel tests to create world-class laboratory testing, and he's also educated thousands of providers about hormone monitoring best practices. So he will be on next week. And beyond that, I believe that we're going to have America's pharmacist, Susie Cohen, the week after. So we have some pretty interesting people coming coming on board over the next uh, month and a half or so. So hopefully everybody's got the... Um, the PDF that I created. I'd like to remind you that this PDF was created several months ago, so there are um, (laughs) probably a couple of little mistakes in there, okay, and I'll go through them. Uh, Again, if you could hold your questions towards the end, there'll be plenty of time to call in or type in questions, and I'll do my best to answer them. And let us proceed, okay, with the PDF, the introduction. Uh, I'd like to remind you that the purpose of this presentation is to give the reader a general idea of what polymorphisms, otherwise known as single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, mean and how you may determine if they are expressing in you. I'm going to say this about a thousand times, people. Okay, the presence of a SNP does not mean there's a problem in the indicated pathway. That means the presence of a SNP does not mean you're ill. The absence of a SNP does not mean that the pathway is working normally. You can block up those pathways real good, okay, and and still have a normal-looking pathway on genetics, okay? So the rule is the presence of a SNP does not mean you're ill. The absence of a SNP does not mean you're well. You should not treat the SNPs. You should treat the person. The SNPs may or may not be expressing in you, and this is why it's advisable to consult a healthcare provider who understands SNPs and helps put it all together. Some legal stuff. This is an informational lecture. The information may or not may or may not pertain to your condition. I can't give specific recommendations for treatment when we talk. Okay, treatment should be properly done on an individual basis in consultation with your healthcare provider. There are numerous interpretations of the SNPs. This is this informational lecture is from my own personal research, knowledge, and experience. There may be other differing interpretations. So if I say something that doesn't agree with what you've read, please don't chase me down the street, okay? Permissions. I had the study we're going to look at is one of my patients utilizing the raw data from 23andMe.com and Sterling's app at mthfrsupport.com. Sterling's app version 1. Speaking of which, version 2 is coming out soon. I'm told... In the very near future, version 2 is going to be even more understandable because it's going to be placing the SNPs into the pathways. I've seen the, I've seen the mock-ups, I've seen the um, pathways, and let's face it, if you look at Dr. Yasko's pathways, wow, that's confusing. You look at Dr. Ben's pathways, as accurate as they are, oh my God, this breaks it down into nice chunks and you'll be able to understand things better. And um, rather important, and I think it's worth it. I'm very impressed, quite frankly. I can't wait for it to come out. I've been beating Sterling around the head and shoulders trying to get it, get it out there pretty quickly. Anyway, the research for this particular lecture was done utilizing SNPpedia, which is like the Wikipedia of SNPs. 
or uh, genecards.org, unless I've otherwise indicated. And by the way, you can see what happens if you don't treat people, treat the SNPs correctly, treat the people correctly. Look at those poor cats with glowing eyes. Okay, those are actually my cats, um, and um, they have that look on their face like, who disturbs our slumber? Until they recognize it was me, and then the lights went off. Anyway, anyway, let's go. What are these genes and SNPs we're looking at? Okay, I mean, what's the big deal? Okay, the gene that everybody gets crazy, it's a gene, it's a gene. I'm like, okay, the gene encodes an enzyme. We're actually looking at the, epige- the epigenome. Not going to worry about it at the moment. Genome, epigenome. The genes we're looking at encode enzymes. They create enzymes. These enzymes run the metabolic processes in the body. The presence of a polymorphism might indicate that the gene that the enzyme encoded by the gene in question may not be working as it's one more time. Just speak the English language. May not be working at its usual efficacy. Well, I was corrected about that um, many times, but think of it as conceptually. Okay, the enzyme may not be working at peak efficiency, but there are a whole lot of the enzymes that may be taking over for it. So it might mean, the polymorphism might mean that the enzyme is not working at its peak efficiency. A normal, when you're looking at any of the tests, the normal gene minus minus is usually green. Okay, it means that the enzyme is working at its usual efficiency. <clears throat> Heterozygous, or plus minus minus plus, however you like it, the yellow indicates that the enzyme is working at approximately 60% efficiency. And homozygous, plus plus, which is usually red, indicates that the enzyme is working at 20% efficiency, 10 or 20% efficiency. Think of it this way. Think of the biochemical pathways as highways that are able to process a certain level of traffic to produce their stated result. This, this concept works. I've, I've used a lot of similes, a lot of examples. This concept really works, people. Okay, think of the biochemical pathways as highways. And you're trying, the highways are producing something. They're, they're either doing detoxification or they're creating glutathione. They're metabolizing excitatory neurotransmitters or whatever it happens to be. And they're able to process a certain amount of traffic. Let's face it, if you have an eight-lane highway, and you try and put 20 lanes of traffic in it, it's going to slow down, okay? If you have a two-lane highway and you're putting 10 cars a minute in, no big deal, okay? It's going to run. So the normal expression, the green, okay, let's think of it as an eight-lane highway. Heterozygous or yellow, let's think about that as a four-lane highway. And homozygous or red, let's think of that as a two-lane highway, Okay, and basically all is well if the traffic is light, like when you were a baby. Okay, pushing 12 lanes of traffic through an eight or a four lane highway will slow down the processes, but you'll get stuff done. But putting 12 lanes of traffic through a two lane highway may just go ahead and crash that pathway, may make it decrease so much that you simply don't get the products you're looking for. What is this traffic I'm talking about? And I haven't even lapsed into a Brooklyn accent yet. Wait, it's coming. Okay. Um, the increased traffic comes from chronic infections, viral loads, food allergies, leaky gut syndrome, immune upregulation, autoimmune diseases, fungal or yeast, parasites, or any combination thereof. Anything that stresses the body is going to increase the traffic in the pathways, okay, depending on what pathway you're looking at. 
Okay, so think of it as think of it that way. Let me give you some principles when you're looking at your own testing and interpreting the SNPs. Okay, interpreting each SNP one by one is courting confusion at best and mental illness at worst. Trust me. Okay, if you if you go to Snippedia or anywhere else and start reading about every single gene, okay, you're going to get so double-minded and so discombobulated, and that's a scientific term, discombobulation, okay, that you're going to get yourself very confused at best and very upset at worst. <clears throat> Think of each snippet is but part of a biochemical pathway. I told you I'm going to mention this a lot. I'm going to get it through. Don't worry about it. Okay, because a lot of people, it just doesn't sit. They, they don't understand that it's part of a biochemical pathway. By itself, MTHFR, for example, is nobody by itself. It has it interacts with other pathways. So the best way to view these is from the thirty thousand foot point of view, in other words, the overview. And that's the way we're going to look at these SNPs in groups. One last thing before we dive in. Okay, uh you have your um Sterling's app in front of you. Let me explain to you what the all these little numbers and things are in front of it. On the one side, on the left hand side You'll have the gene, like the CYP1A1 is part of the cytochrome P450 pathway in the liver. It's part of the detoxification pathway. The variation, you see the star, the four, and all those other numbers, because each of the gene has its own personality, so to speak. The RS numbers, when they did the Human Genome Project, they numbered all the genes. And don't ask me what RS means, okay? Um, one of these days, somebody will tell me. And um, so basically, the individual gene, if you're looking for it, can be identified by that RSID number. The alleles, the risk allele tells you if the gene is a SNP, okay? In other words, in the first example up there, if the alleles were TT, it would be, it would be green. But since it's CT, it is a homozygous. If it was CC, it would be, I'm sorry, heterozygous. If it was CC, it would be homozygous. Frankly, don't worry about it. Somebody else, many other people, have done this research already. So unless, you're, <laughs> unless you've made OCD into an art form, okay, it's probably a really good idea to just accept the fact that what they're writing there is pretty well correct and look at the gene and look at the result, which is the colored plus, minus, 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 or plus, plus. Okay, that's the easiest and best way to go about this. Okay, we are on page nine. Okay, I'm going to just make this a little bigger for myself because I am blind as a bat. I'm getting old people. Okay, this is the first page you see on uh, Sterling's app. Okay, and it has to do with mostly the um, detoxification pathways. And again, I'm going to do this in groups. Uh, one way you can look at this is if you took that page and folded it forward, everything above the crease would have to do with estrogen dominance. Okay, yes, there are other things going on, but estrogen dominance is the primary uh, issue there. Estrogen dominance <clears throat> essentially means you have difficulty metabolizing estrogen. Okay, and some ladies will experience PMS, PMDD, which is PMS on steroids. Uh, that was a joke, you can laugh. Uh, any kind of hormonal difficulties, men might experience this as symptoms of low testosterone. And uh, it takes interpretation to figure out if this is actually going on. 
to what degree, and how to work with it. There are several substances you can use to help estrogen metabolize. As we go down, the homozygous CYP2D6 has to do with difficulty in metabolizing things like dextromethorphan, which is the fifth cousin to codeine, and you see that a lot in Robitussin DM, beta blockers, antiarrhythmics, and antidepressants. The CYP2D6T2850C raises the specter of an ultra-fast metabolizer phenotype. What does that mean? Well, you could say real fast and then charge a lot of money, then nobody will like argue with you. But this is the kind of person who, when they take a medicine, always gets side effects. They can't take something without getting side effects. And the reason is, is they're metabolizing it so quickly that they get a very, very high level very quickly, which is where you get side effects. Okay, and they don't really get a therapeutic duration of the medication or the nutraceutical for that matter. So they kind of blow through the medicine or nutraceutical really, really fast, get the side effects, but they don't even get the therapeutic benefits. This kind of person, if they're expressing, maybe should take smaller doses more frequently. Okay? You might see this in the ultra-fast, the ultra-rapid cycling bipolar person. Okay, they may have this particular gene. Okay, let's go to page two. I want you to think of the G's there, GPX, GSTM, GSTP, as the glutathione pathway. Okay, and the glutathione pathway is not the creation of glutathione, but it predicts the bioavailability of glutathione. Okay, and it's not an easy thing to sit here and go, well, you've got one snip over here and it's going to, block it all up. It may or may not. There's a lot of a lot of things to be um considered because you're looking about you're looking at glutathione peroxidase, glutathione S transferase, and some of these things like you see here that it influences asthma risk and so forth. Okay. But that whole pathway has to do with the availability of glutathione once you have it. The more important pathway here that a lot of people have is the NATs or the N acetyltransferases. These are the guys that break down aldehydes. What are aldehydes? Well, we've all heard of formaldehyde, right? If you uh, were in school and you had to dissect anything, those yucky things were preserved in formaldehyde. Okay, it smelled horrible. You ever wonder why things are preserved in formaldehyde? It is such a great creator of um, oxidative stress that it stops all biochemical processes. So it preserves everything. It just stops everything from, you know, moving around and nothing breaks down. Uh, kind of nasty. Great if you're trying to do, you know, dissection, but if you have it in your brain, it's nasty. So think of ethanol or, you know, your alcohol that you drink. That breaks down from ethanol to ethyl aldehyde, to ethochronic acid, and then carbon dioxide and water. Uh, anybody who's had a hangover realizes that... Um, may not realize, but the reason that you have a hangover is because the enzyme that breaks down ethanol is, in a, is not in an inexhaustible supply. So you get a lot of aldehyde still hanging around. That gets in your brain and, oh my God, you've got a hangover. <clears throat> if you have a lot of polymorphisms in this particular uh, pathway, eh, hold on just a moment, you may not be able to break down or conjugate or metabolize aldehydes. 
how would you know if this were true? Well, if you're my age, and I'm not telling you how old I am, except that I have a bald head and gray beard, uh, and early in your life you were able to have, you know, alcohol, have some wine, have whatever, and it felt good, but now you have alcohol and it just makes you feel bad all of a sudden, well, then this pathway is probably expressing. It's probably not working real well. You're probably backing up on um, on your um, aldehydes. The other big thing here, and you should pay attention to this, the other big thing here is that if you have uh, yeast overgrowth, this is going to be a problem. Yeast overgrowth, yeast will produce a lot of acetaldehyde, okay? And anybody from the 1980s remembers that one of the big cries was, don't feed the yeast, don't feed the yeast, don't feed the yeast. Okay, and the reason was is because they blamed yeast on everything. They blamed yeast causing MS, causing this, causing that. You know something? They were right. It was one of the factors because you produce enough acetaldehyde and you cannot metabolize it. It's going to get in your brain. It's going to inflame it. It's just as if you injected formaldehyde. Okay, so you see this and you have trouble with alcohol, drinking ethanol, then this is probably expressing, and you should make sure if you're constantly ill, if you've got chronic illness, yeast may be a big problem here. Okay? Let's go to page, what I've got is 11, I guess, <clears throat> and look at the SOD superoxide dismutase, which you can think of, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff going around about SOD right now. Okay, but basically, okay, if you start seeing a lot of polymorphisms here, you should be thinking that you have difficulty in metabolizing free radicals, okay? And it's an important indicator of mitochondrial dysfunction. Now, I'm going to go through mitochondrial dysfunction in a little while, but understand that there's a difference between mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial dysfunction. The mitochondrial disease where you see all the you know, um, hospitals and so forth, that's, that's a genetic problem, uh, and these poor, poor children... Their mitochondria simply don't work, and they don't usually last beyond 10 years of age. And, um, and, you know, I know there's a lot of research going on in that area, but mitochondrial dysfunction, we found, when I say we, I'm talking about all the people that, you know, I have the pleasure of working with, all the professionals who have been giving of themselves like you wouldn't believe. By the way, you guys should see what happens behind the scenes, trying to understand and work through all these processes, okay? There are a lot of people out there, Sterling, Hill, Cynthia, Istvan, uh, Sean Bean, uh, myself, uh, many, 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 many people out there who are working incredibly hard to understand this so we can bring this to you because we know that this is part of the answer. This is a big part of the answer, okay, to a lot of chronic illnesses, but I digress. Anyway, so when you see a lot of polymorphisms here, you should be thinking mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondria is how you create your energy, your ATP. I'll go through it in a little while. <clears throat> mitochondrial dysfunction is a constant feature in anybody who has chronic illness. And a lot of times when you fix that, that's the thing that makes people better. By the way, if you have the PON1, that is kind of uh, specific for organophosphates, pesticides. So if you have a red there, I wouldn't be spraying Roundup. Okay. By the way, you even notice, I mean, if you're, if you're of an age 
that in the 50s and 60s, they had cleaning solutions and so forth, with the exception of DDT, let's forget that, okay? But now they have like industrial cleaning solutions you can get in a can and spray it and everybody uses it, you know? Same thing with pesticides. You know, Roundup is kind of nasty, you know? So maybe we shouldn't use it. I don't know. Tongue tie cleft palate. The tongue tie uh, people... Um, these are children who have uh, who are born with uh, adhesions of their tongue to parts of their cleft, or they have cleft palate. Uh, Dr. Ben Lynch has done a lot of research in this area, and he he was kind enough to let me uh, put his um, his uh, website or this uh, particular link if you wanted to go and uh, see the webinar on tongue tie cleft palate. He knows a whole lot more about it than I do. I will say that the CTH gene on the top does have some contribution to the transsulfuration pathway, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. The allergy and mold area. Okay, uh, this area was a little poorly constructed because it's got allergy and mold, and then it's got IgE on the bottom, where it should be on the next page. But over the next three pages, we're going to look at the body's tendency to produce immunoglobulins, if you will, based on being showered with antigens. Um, in this particular case, the two molds, you may want to make the conclusion that mold is not your friend. Uh, just because you have a polymorphism in this area does not mean that you're going to hyperreact to mold. Okay, I know some patients who could make a living out of detecting mold. They walk by a building and say, there's mold there, okay, because they're getting reactions from outside the building. Okay, this is just part of what may be affecting somebody. The next page, where you see all the reds and yellows, this is the IgE pathways. And I'll tell you something, that this particular person, okay, when faced with a bunch of antigens, is producing a ton of histamine. Why is that important? Well, one, histamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Two, histamine has this tendency to rip open cells and cause it to leak. And we can tend to think of histamine as that thing that makes our noses, you know, uh, dripping or... <coughs> You know, and people make all kinds of funny noises and have to blow their nose and they take an antihistamine to dry up. Well, histamine is not just annoying to your nose. It is ripping apart cells in your body. It is one of the things that makes cells leaky. And a leaky cell is not a happy cell. A leaky cell is a dysfunctional cell. And let's face it, if you have dysfunctional cells, nothing's going to work. IgG and IgA, you can think of as coming from perhaps food allergies. Okay, and this person has a great propensity to food allergies. Now, this is usually from leaky gut syndrome, okay? Remember that leaky gut syndrome, okay, is antigens getting through the gut, getting into the basement membrane where the immune system starts working on it, and there's a big production of antibodies, okay? Without getting very ostentatious, that is the basis of most inflammation. Okay, that is the basis of why we are always working on the gut to decrease inflammation. And I had a patient this week um, <clears throat> email me, um, and they're for, my patients are forever emailing me, hey, can you check this out for me? I'm like, sure, no problem. Uh, it was a product, and I won't name the product, okay, and it, it was um, to heal the GI tract. Okay. So I went over, and I'm reading this website, and it's talking about curing autoimmune disease and, you know, eradicating inflammation. It all had to do with decreasing inflammation by healing the gut. 
the product was incredibly expensive. Okay, the stuff that I recommend is generally a third or, in this case, a sixth of the price doing the same exact thing. Plus, these are some of my ideas. I was thinking of suing these people. Okay, I mean, <laughs> I thought I was one of the first people to come up with the uh, the thought that if you decreased inflammation, you can decrease, but by by fixing the gut, you can decrease or get rid of autoimmune diseases, dysautonomia. I mean, I've taken a lot of hits because people say, who are you? I'm like, I'm me. You know, we haven't seen you in the literature. I said, well, your literature hasn't cured anybody. Maybe we have to look at it a different way. But the concept of uh, fixing the gut to decrease or eradicate a lot of inflammation is very sound. And part of fixing a gut is fixing the leaky cells, re-establishing re cell wall integrity. And when you do that, the cells work, and when they work, they don't allow bad things to happen like in mastocytosis or mast cell activation disorder and all these different things that we think are separate entities are really not separate entities. They're downstream effects of something else. Okay, but that's my soapbox, right? <clears throat> Clotting factors. Uh, there's a lot to be said about clotting factors. What I usually tell people is if you're a bleeder, you'd known about it a long time ago. What I like to look at is somebody has a lot of polymorphisms here, I will ask them if they clot very quickly. If uh, you're a lady who, has, who still has your period and you're passing an awful lot of clots, that probably means that um, you you know you can start getting clots and create heart attack, strokes, that kind of stuff. If you're a man and you're shaving or a lady and you're shaving, and you're uh, you get a nick and you you know you stop bleeding in 10 seconds, okay, that's not a good thing. Okay, the normal clotting time should be between one and three minutes. Okay, and the quicker you clot, you clot, the higher the probability that you can create emboli or thrombi and create the problems that go along with that. <clears throat> also, this is where I think where MTHFR and miscarriages come along because the late-stage miscarriages, the placentas are all filled with clots, and I think maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's what um, cuts the oxygen off the uh, from the baby and gave everybody the impression that MTHFR causes it by itself. Um, when I get there, I'll talk about that. The methylation pathway per se. Okay, the first four you see there have to do with angiotensin, which is hypertension, okay, um, preeclampsia, acetylcoenzyme, acetyltransferase. Think of it as those areas that would have to do with heart and hypertension, okay, if you're having a lot of problems there. I've also noticed something. This is not in the literature. I've only seen it by association. I've seen that people who have a lot of polymorphisms here and then have a lot of inflammation long-term tend to head towards the dysautonomias. Okay, don't ask me to prove it. I can only do it by clinical observation right now, but I've noticed that they head towards the dysautonomias like POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, uh, orthostatic intolerance, uh, and, you know, the whole gamut of things that are dysfunctions of the autonomic nervous system, and I think this has something to do with it. I'm sure if I looked hard enough, I'd find it in the literature, but, you know, medical guys doing literature, they don't... <laughs> want anybody to get better, so why would they possibly research something that would help anyone get better? Okay, anyway, um, I know I'm on my soapbox a lot tonight. Okay, I did um, put Dr. Yasko's basic pathway, just to give everybody a little bit of uh, orientation. We still tend to think of MTHFR as being by itself. 
we tend to think of methylation as being the only thing we're worried about, okay? And that's the farthest thing from the truth. If you had a big picture of the biochemical processes on your wall, and there's, there is a poster like that, and would take up your entire wall, this whole process is like real small, okay? It's only part of it. But just to give you a little orientation, if we go to the top there, your dietary folates become tetrahydrofolate. And if I say a word fast, it is made to be ignored. And I'm only going to do part of the pathway, so don't anybody get upset with me that I'm not mentioning every single little thing. Okay, so the tetrahydrofolate passes by MTHFS, methylene tetrahydrofolate synthase, which creates 510-methylene tetrahydrofolate. Like I said, ignore it when I say it fast. You're not going to be impressed that I can pronounce the words. The 510-methylene tetrahydrofolate passes by the dreaded MTHFR, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. It reduces 5-10-methylene tetrahydrofolate to 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. And I had somebody call me up today and actually call it the mother gene. I was like, what? I know they wanted to say the mother-father gene or something else, but <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it was good. Anyway, it passes by MTR and MTR to become methionine and methyl B12. And uh, the joke that I always say is that the methyl B12 goes to a bad neighborhood in Brooklyn and loses its methyl group. And I told it not to go there but it went there anyway, and it lost its methyl group. Essentially, it has to be remethylated, which is done by either SAMe or with the BHMT pathway with trimethylglycine, which is also betaine from choline, becomes dimethylglycine. Without getting ostentatious, it becomes SAH, goes past AHCY, which creates homocysteine. Homocysteine goes due south, past cystathione beta synthase, which creates cystathione. This is where you start getting into your transsulfuration pathway. This is where there's a lot of sulfur. Okay, and uh, cystathione will pass by an, a gene, I'm sorry, an enzyme called cystathione A's or CTH and create cysteine with alpha-ketoglutarate will create glutathione. Glutathione is your max, is your master antioxidant and anti-toxicant. Classically, if there's something wrong in this pathway, you might have increased ammonia, which will give you brain fog, Okay, I'm making it very, very simplistic. You'll notice there's a lot of other pathways involved. If you go back to MTHFR, you'll notice it has another circle where it's interacting with the BH4 pathway and where that's the creation of neurotransmitters, tryptophan to uh, serotonin, tyrosine to L-dopa, then dopamine, then norepinephrine, then epinephrine. And you'll see the breakdown of those neurotransmitters are mediated by monoamine oxidase and catechol methyltransferase, okay? Problems with those may create difficulty in breaking down the excitatory neurotransmitters, and they would create a backup, if you will. And that's where certain excitatory problems like anxiety, OCD, ODD, anything that would be considered an excitatory problem, okay, that may be the genesis of it. Okay. Oh, gee, I hope that wasn't so bad. I thought it was like, all right. You don't treat... C-O-M-T and M-A-O-A, you treat the reason for the excitation, okay? Um, the GADs on the bottom, I'll explain that as we go as we go along. Okay, I'm hoping, hopefully everybody's still here because I just heard a uh, crazy noise. Anyway, okay, so the page we're looking at is page 16, okay? You see HCY, which catalyzes the hydrolysis of... <clears throat> ADOHCO to adenosine, which is uh, and then and homocysteine, 
and it is believed to play a critical role in the regulation of the biologic methylations, according to Dr. Yasko. Okay, BHMT basically changes trimethylglycine into dimethylglycine, like I just said. Some people with an inner sadness may find that this is the issue. Okay, um, some have talked about this as being the shortcut through the methylation cycle to convert homocysteine to methionine, helping to convert homocysteine to methionine. Um, the activity of this gene can be affected by stress, by cortisol levels, may pay, play a role in ADHD by affecting norepinephrine levels. So what, you're, what we're saying here is that the BHM2, that whole remethylation area, can affect the excitatory neurotransmitters. A lot of people concentrate on CBS. CBS is not a radio station. It is the cystathione beta synthase. Okay, and it's important in the transsulfuration pathway that uh, to impart in the process of producing glutathione. Uh, how do you know if it's a problem? Okay. If you have difficulty with sulfur foods, uh, sensitivity to sulfur medications, or vitamins like N-acetylcysteine, they make you ill. There's a problem in this pathway. Okay, uh, not if you take glutathione. Glutathione is the kind of the end result. But if you're using any of the building blocks, okay, and, and they bother you. So uh, green leafy vegetables, things like uh, cruciferous uh, vegetables, uh, broccoli, cauliflower, garlic, onions, if um, they bother you, if they really make you not feel well, then there may be a problem in the um, transsulfuration pathway. With a child, you may look at what they are naturally avoiding, uh, taking into account their age group. Okay, you might might make a, uh, a judgment on um, whether the transsulfuration pathway is kind of blocked up or not, okay? COMT, like we talked about before, metabolizes catecholamines, okay? Catecholamines are the excitatory neurotransmitters. And if you ever forget that, okay, remember the first three letters, CAT, C-A-T. Think of the cat on the hot tin roof, okay? And you will never forget that catecholamines mean excitatory neurotransmitters. Just think of it. Okay? And you'll never forget. By the way, I, that's the way I teach doctors. They don't. That's how they associate. By the way, you think they're smarter than not. Anyway, when you have SNPs here, you might have anxiety, anger, or any of the excitatory problems. Okay, it may be one of the reasons. All right. DAO, diamine oxidase, is important for the metabolism of extra metabolism of extracellular histamine. Oh. A lot of people have said, well, that's just extracellular histamine. I'm like, well, that's 50% of the histamine in your body. What are you worried about? If you've got a lot of uh, problems in that area, then uh, you aren't going to be wrong by taking diamine oxidase, and it comes as a supplement. Okay? The FLOR, the folate receptors, okay, these can be blocked by folic acid, may blocked by dairy products. And let me tell you, if you block your folate receptors, okay, the folate's not going to be able to get into the cells, and that's not a good thing, okay? The FUT2s, the uh, focal, oh, I can't pronounce the word, sorry, focal cell transferase 2, I think of it as the B12 drainer, the thing that uh, doesn't allow you to hold on to B12. And frankly, uh, you kind of need to have your B12, you have to look at the pathways and figure out uh, what kind of B12 somebody might need. What's the symptoms of a lack of B12? 
okay? Usually nerve problems, uh, you can't form your blood cells, stuff like that. A high level of B12 in the serum usually means that the B12 is not getting into the cells. And by the way, if you're, <clears throat> if you're uh, getting testing done, okay, it's good to get serum testing, but the better testing would be to see what's inside the cells. Okay, and there are various companies that do that testing. Uh, the glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase uh, deficiency is a hereditary condition where red blood cells break down when the body is too exposed to certain drugs or stress of infection. Uh, this person doesn't have the gene for it. That doesn't mean doesn't have it. It just doesn't have the gene for it. GADs, okay? The GAD is the glutamate decarboxylase. This is what takes glutamate, which is very excitatory, it's like itching powder, and turns it into GABA which is a calming. Now, I like to call these genes the general anxiety disorder genes because if you look them up, they're always going to say anxiety disorders, major depression, and neuroticism. Okay? I'm going to give you a clinical pearl here. If the polymorphisms are all yellow, you're going to tend to maybe go towards the anxiety disorders or any of the excitation disorders. If there are a lot of reds, you're going to have a tendency to go towards more serious mental illnesses. You may not find it in the person. You may see it in the family, okay? And, in fact, this person does have schizophrenia, uh, this particular uh, individual. Okay, GAMT uh, is a defect in uh, the gene that may cause neurological syndrome symptoms based on the difficulty in creating creatinine, creatine, sorry, and the accumulation of uh, guano, uh, guanido, I can't pronounce it, <laughs> guanidoacetate in the brain of the affected individual. Well, this is just another reason why this person's brain <clears throat> is going to be affected negatively. We talk about the MAOA, uh, which he does not have, but it is also, the monoamine oxidase A is called the warrior gene. And I need to take something to uh, drink because I wanted to say the warrior gene, like a Klingon warrior. And in this particular case, if someone had, let's say, a red uh, MAOA, that would add to the problems of excitation. And uh, the reason they call it the warrior gene, people, is because they found it in the Maori warriors in New Zealand. Okay, And if you really think about it, <clears throat> if you're a tribal warrior, you really kind of want your COMT to... To, to not be working well, your MAO not to be working well, because if you're going to go into battle, okay, and you're going to start getting your, you know, your your uh, the, your warrior groove on, you're going to start dancing around and doing whatever it is you're going to do to start b building up that excitation before you get into battle. It's either that, or you're going to have somebody in a horse with half a blue face running back and forth in front of you yelling, they can take our lives, but they cannot take our freedom, before you go after the English. Okay, so you've got to build up that excitation. You're going to have to run across this field, okay, which, I mean, I looked at that field and I said, <laughs> I'm not even walking across that. You've got to run across that field and then engage in battle. Well, the people who you saw turning around and running were not cowards. They just didn't have these genes. So once you get that, that buildup and, and that, you know, excitation and you're going to go into battle, you kind of need that excitation to stay there. Okay, and these genes provide that. Anyway. The next thing to look at is the MTHFD1s, okay? Uh, I want to make a point, go to the next page that, and I'm going to probably mention this about a million times, that the cell wall is a phospholipid bilayer. Our cell walls 
are made up of fat, but specifically they are phospholipids, okay? Phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylethanolamine, phosphatidylinositol, phosphatidylserine, okay? This is mostly phosphatidylcholine, and the pathways, you know, phosphatidylethanolamine becomes phosphatidylcholine and so forth. <clears throat> if you don't have, if you have trouble manufacturing or holding on to this, you cannot heal your cells. If you have a lot of histamine, it's going to rip those cells open. The cells will be dysfunctional, okay? Remember, my kids always, kids, my kids will tell their friends, never ask my dad a question. Don't ask him a question. Don't ask him a question. Why? Because he's going to start from the cell wall, from the big bang. It's your choice, okay? Fact is that the cellular structure is reflective of the entire body, okay? So what are a bunch of cells? Tissues. What are a bunch of tissues that work together? Organs. What are a bunch of organs that work together for the good of the whole? Call that the body, right? Guess what? If the cells aren't working, okay, if they're leaky, guess what? You're not going to heal. One of the things that is ignored, and I don't know why, ignored by almost every practitioner out there is the stability of the cell walls. Either they don't recognize it or they don't treat it. I don't know why, but this is one of the big reasons why people do not want to heal. It is a big part of the treatment plan. The person who turned me on to this was Sean Bean, okay? And I, I will forever be grateful for it because I've been able to assist in the healing of innumerable people just by getting the cell walls back together again. Okay, so we're looking at page 20 and looking at the MTHFT1, again, giving you an, an indicator that this person has difficulty in storing the phospholipidylcholine or phosphatidylcholine, and God forbid, nobody can pronounce phosphatidyl, much less spell it, okay? MTHF, MTHFR. <sighs> MTHFR, <laughs> I'm always kidding about it, okay, because... Everybody in the whole wide world concentrates just on MTHFR. And worse, they concentrate on only two versions, C677T and 1298 Okay, It's important. It is important. Okay, But it is not the end-all and all. And I want you to understand that there's a reason why, if you look up MTHFR and what can possibly happen with it, why there are so many conditions associated with it. Because this was the first gene that they started really looking at. Okay, they started seeing that people who had high homocysteine had MTHFR, and they only, well, a lot of them had C677T and 1298C. Oh, my God. Okay, and then all these other people were like, oh, my God, we have MTHFR, and, this is, and they made the erroneous conclusion that MTHFR by itself caused all these different things. Yes, they were a part of it, but there's so many other things that are a part of the various syndromes that we can spend the next hour and a half talking about, okay? By itself, MTHFR is important, but it's not the only thing in the world that is important. It has to be placed in the greater scheme of things. But to give it its due, MTHFR reduces the capacity to produce, if you have a problem, reduces the capacity to produce methylfolate. Methylfolate is real important. The end consequences may lead to reduced levels of BH4 to create neurotransmitters, and SAMe. Downstream effects of reduced BH4 and SAMe levels um, are numerous as MTHFR is a regulator of methylation and biopterin, okay, biopterin. 
that PT is like saying pterodactyl, okay? English is a tough language, okay? Why do you not produce, why do you not pronounce the P? We won't get into it, okay? Um, and the variance of the MTH4 doesn't matter, but some variants reduce enzymatic kinetics more potently than others, such as the C677T and the 1298C. Um, combinations may indicate more restriction. A lot of people still <clears throat> come to me and get very worried about the uh, compound heterozygous. Okay, fact is, if you look at the MTHFRs here, there's like I'm thinking about 15 of them. Okay, and there's like 50 MTHFRs. If you have most of these have a polymorphism, if you've got 15 and you've got 11, there's going to be a problem. Okay, but if you've got 15 and you've only got one, that's a polymorphism then the probability of it being a problem is greatly reduced, okay? If we go to the next page, MTHFS, i got to tell you, I've never seen somebody without a polymorphism there, so I'm not really sure how significant it is. I may be wrong, but what can I say? Okay, MTR talks about the conversion to methyl B12, okay? So in this particular person, I'm a little, I don't know that I'd push the methyl groups uh, remember, you shouldn't treat methylation primarily. You should bring down in inflammation and attend to the body before you support the methylation pathway. Okay, that's the best way to go about things. Nitrous oxide synthase, okay, the ability to break down nitrous oxide. Okay, this, when you see this in this manner, okay, this in the next page with a lot of polymorphisms, Frankly, this person's mitochondria is probably not working very well. But according to biogerontology, okay, the gene variation of NOS1 and NOS2 was associated with longevity. And in addition, NOS1 was also found to be associated with lower cognitive performance, while NOS2 polymorphism showed to be associated with physical performance. Um, Moreover, SNPs in the NOS1 and NOS2 genes were respectively associated with the presence of depression symptoms and disability, two of the main factors affecting the quality of life in older individuals. Essentially, people, the NOSs and SODs, when they have a lot of polymorphisms, you're more prone to oxidative stress, which is going to cause all those problems. Okay? Simple as that. PEMT, phosphatidylethanolamine. Okay, that is, that's what produces phosphatidylcholine. So that whole pathway is having a problem. The SHMT gene is your leaky gut gene. Um, the other guys are transporter genes. And if you have um, folate and cobalt in um, B12, you have difficulty moving it around. Okay, the vitamin D receptors. Okay, everybody's arguing horribly about them. <clears throat> is a protein coding gene. It diseases associated with VDR include osteoporosis, vitamin D-dependent vitamin D rickets. Um, quite frankly, I know there's been a lot of argument in the uh, in the epigenetic community about the significance of the uh, VDR, so I'm not going to get too much into it. Uh, celiac disease, gluten intolerance. These genes are more for gluten intolerance. And the conclusion by looking at this is that gluten may not be your friend. Okay, and gluten is probably nobody's friend. Okay, especially, and, and I'm going to give you a little secret now, another clinical pearl, okay, is that, um, is that the, um, hold on a second, guys. Um, 
Oh my gosh, Sean's been like um, texting me like crazy. All right, but anyway, this is my show. <laughs> he's got a lot of stuff that he wants to add. I'm very sure. I'm very sure. He's a, he's an incredibly bright guy, and I love him. Anyway, uh, when you see a lot of polymorphisms in the, uh, I was talking about gluten. Okay, I I'm seeing a lot of not only gluten intolerance but intolerance of grains. Because the same process that got us sensitive to the gluten, which is leaky gut syndrome, is now getting us sensitive to all the various grains. So that's why for a lot of people, the paleo diet's working out very well because it's pulling away grains and lectins. Lectins are uh, very small grains that, you know, um, get into the lamina propria or basement membrane rather quickly. Okay? Uh, And that's why just staying off gluten sometimes for people is not the answer and why I get so upset when I ask a patient if they've been working on their gut and their only answer is, well, I'm on a GAPS diet and I'm taking probiotics at the direction of their healthcare practitioner who has, in fact, not been fixed in the gut. That upsets me, by the way. Anyway, thyroid, uh, if you see polymorphisms there, you should make sure that you get your thyroid checked, and, you know, like a full thyroid panel, not only just the TSH, but the free T3, free T4, reverse T3, thyroperoxidase antibodies, uh, thyroglobulin antibodies, okay? And if you have a real question of whether your thyroid's working, because we live in a society right now where if it's not on the lab test, it doesn't exist. Well, we've been trying to turn that around, but if you want to know if your thyroid's working, you've got symptoms, and get a thermometer, preferably one of the old stick thermometers, okay, because they're better at the lower ends. Shake it down, uh, and every morning before you get out of bed, put it under your tongue for 10 minutes and record the um, record the temperature, okay? If you're a lady who's cycling, you have to do this for at least two weeks. Uh, if you're a man, you could just do it for five days. If you're hanging around 97.5 or below, you have hypothyroidism, no question. Okay, if you're around the 98 range, you're probably and you're still having the tiredness and stuff. It may be an adrenal problem. Okay, if it's anywhere in between, it requires interpretation. The eye health has to do with beta carotene breaking down um, into vitamin A. And uh, sometimes, uh, if you've ever seen somebody who drinks a lot of carrot juice, okay, and they start looking like a carrot. Well, <laughs> this enzyme's not working well for them. Now, I promised to go over mitochondrial function with you, okay? And before we get into mitochondrial function, if you go to the next page, which these things are not numbered correctly, I apologize, uh, you see a kind of a little schematic of how energy is created, so I'll go through it with you rather quickly, okay? Uh, We all know that glucose creates energy. That energy is actually ATP, which is nesting triphosphate. One mole of glucose, and a mole is not a furry animal, let's say um, it's a number, okay, 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd molecules, otherwise known as avocado number, creates 38 ATPs, but it first has to go through glycolysis. At the end of glycolysis, you have lactate and pyruvate, and if there's oxygen, and plus two ATPs, by the way, okay, it's going to go into the aerobic cycle or the Krebs cycle, which is basically a honking amount of... Uh, biochemical processes that end up in the creation of NADH and FADH2, which are electron donors. The electron donors 
are those substances that go into the electron transport chain in the mitochondria to create your ATP. If you go to the next page, I've got a cutaway view of the electron transport chain. Now, what happens is you've got to look at the mitochondria. It's got two membranes, an outer and an inner membrane. And that intermembrane space becomes kind of important. So real, real simple, okay? Uh, coenzyme Q10 is the doorman. It ferries NADH and FADH2 into the electron transport chain, complex 1 being um, the enzyme is NDUFS, will pull off the H, take the proton, put it into the intermembrane space, hold on to the electron. It takes FADH2 to complex 2, where succinate dehydrogenase pulls off the two H's, takes two of the protons, don't ask me how they go about doing it, okay, and then holds on to the electrons. Then it goes to complex 3, uh, cytochrome C oxidase, I think, and uh, QCRC2 in, in complex 4, and they perform what I like to call magic because any science that is sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic, right? The products of all that stuff go to the fifth complex down there where there is ATP synthase. I wonder what that synthesizes. And, you know, if you look at that thing, it actually looks like a little factory. And those protons that are sitting in the intermembrane space actually run this thing and create, it spins it and ATP comes spitting out. Okay, I'm not going to go through the chemistry of it. It's not important. Okay, what is important is if you want your mitochondria to work, you need several things. One, you need those cell walls to be patent. Two, you need a supply of electron donors. Three, you need uh, clear pathways. Okay, so if you have a lot of polymorphisms, hmm, they may not get in. And four, you need uh, the um, cofactors and coenzymes for the reactions. A cofactor is a trace mineral. Coenzymes are vitamins. Okay? So when they did the uh, when they did the, the uh, Sterling's app here, they didn't put them in complex order, they put them in alphabetical order. So the ATP you're looking at there, that's complex 5, the COX is complex 3, and the NDUFS is complex 1. If you go to the next page, you see that this person's complex 1. It's got a lot of reds. And um, Dr. Ben Lynch is the one who um, discovered the reason why ATP is not being formed in somebody like this, and it's because oxidized glutathione, known as GSSG, starts blocking the entry of the electron donors into, into the first complex of the mitochondria. Okay, and what unblocks it is something called NAD, which is a derivative of niacin. And that's why a lot of people are on NAD drips, and we've sent people with chronic fatigue and all kinds of uh, issues for NAD drips or high-dose high vitamin C with B-complex and a lot of niacinamide because it will open up this particular pathway. We do uh, have examples of people who've had horrible chronic fatigue, you know, like wash the dishes and have to lay down for three days, have these uh, particular uh, IVs done, and within, you know, six IVs, they're out mowing the lawn. Okay, so this does work. This does. This is steeped in science. But uh, in order to get the mitochondria to produce its energy, okay, certain factors have to be paid attention to. And and frankly, 
uh, anything when you're asking, uh, are these expressing if you're having exhaustion, if you're, you just simply don't want to heal, okay, that's one of the ways you're going to look at it, okay, that's one way you're going to know. And the rest of the, um, of the study, okay, um, there are other immune factors, Mediterranean fever, I know that this is all going to change. The sulfonyltransferases um, were important because of the, uh, their indication of the ability of the body to break down uh, sulfur products, which enters into the transsulfation pathway. And I know we have a lot of uh, talk about um, oxalates these days, and um, I think maybe next week or the week after I'm going to have Sean do a, or ask Sean, no, actually we're going to have a special guest who's going to talk about nothing but oxalates, so I'm not going to step on her toes, um, but these are important. Now, I'm going to tie it together before I open it up for questions, okay? By now, I hope I have conveyed the following to everybody. The presence or absence of SNPs in and of themselves does not indicate presence or absence of disease. SNPs are probabilities and need to be correlated with your entire clinical condition. I'm not going to repeat that 17 times. I think you get the idea. <clears throat> Treating only the SNPs with various available products designed for doing so without correlation with your clinical condition is inadvisable at best. In other words, if you're taking stuff that says, oh, this is going to fix COMT, no. That's not the way to go about it. You fix the body and you support the pathways, okay? Besides, there is nothing out there that can fix a gene. That's the way they are, okay? You can help the cofactors a bit, the coenzymes. You can, But if you don't stop what's causing the traffic, you know, it's going to just crash anyway. A correlation has to be done by a trained and experienced healthcare provider. I've always gone by the saying that a doctor who treats himself has got a fool for a patient. Frankly, the reverse is also true. I know a lot of people are trying to, their very, very best, but treating yourself is tough. And that's why we're getting this course together. And we're, you know, people are, there's still openings, by the way. Okay, but they're coming in in droves to try and learn this stuff because they want to, healthcare providers and lay people want to know how to uh, look at the genetics and everything else all together. I think it's going to be one of the biggest um, biggest healthcare coups, <laughs> coup d'etat really, uh, in um, recent times. Looking at the SNPs individually is usually bad. Looking at them as parts of pathways and considering the entire pathway is best. Discovering what's stressing or crashing the pathways, remember the highway example, is the true way of healing an individual. And often when you do this, the pathways fix themselves. For instance, if you, you know, take away the reason for the upregulation, usually the person will start healing. And if it isn't too far gone, they, lots of times you don't have to do anything else. So in choosing a healthcare provider, it's kind of critically important to pick someone who thinks like a detective. Does everybody like my picture of me as Sherlock Holmes? Okay. <laughs> a true holistic practitioner offers you, the, offers you the best of traditional and alternative medicine. Some people call it integrative medicine. Okay, but don't be fooled. Remember that a good holistic practitioner, whether allopathic or alternative, should be looking at everything, not just practicing a particular protocol. This practitioner should not be beholden to a single protocol or single way of thinking. Okay, if that's true, it's time to slip out the backjack. Okay, you need a detective who will build a treatment plan based on your individual genetics and physiology and, most of all, will listen to you. I learned how to be a doctor from very old doctors. I've been a healthcare provider for 38 years. 
And they always told me, if you listen, your patient will tell you what's wrong. Hence, we created bioindividualized medicine because it put all the parameters back and is asking doctors to go back to the 1960s and say, why don't you sit down and listen to your patient, okay? That's why we created bioindividualized medicine, which puts genetics and integrative medicine to a new level by combining neuroendoimmunology, epigenetics, nutrigenomics, secondary or acquired mitochondrial dysfunction, and cell wall integrity. The practitioner trained and experienced in this area has the capability of identifying and treating not only the root causes of the dysfunction, but also attending to the downstream effect. Why is that important? And take a take a chronic Lyme patient, okay? Uh, with the damage already done, if you don't take care of what the damage is to the body every time that body gets under stress, it's going to express symptoms that are going to make you think it's Lyme, but it's not. Okay, you've got to treat the downstream effect as well as the root causes or what now some doctors are calling the upstream effect, okay? They're calling themselves upstreamists. Okay, this has to be done on an individual basis, which is why I haven't written a book. Okay, each person is different with various requirements. Practitioners of this paradigm, you know, are finding answers that have eluded everybody else. And I think you know who's who's been doing this and why we're teaching it. Uh, Alyssa's story, okay? I have this. I have permission to tell you about little Alyssa. Alyssa's the cutest thing on two legs, okay? And uh, I want to tell you this story rather quickly um, so that we have lots of time for questions. But this young lady, uh, her mother came to me a couple of years ago and said that she thought she needed Erlen's glasses, which are those blue things that she's wearing, okay, that cut down on the certain frequencies of light because she was having visual distortions. And you know me, I started asking a lot of questions and found out that, Really, Alyssa was hallucinating. So I asked Mom to ask her certain questions and not to freak her out. And Mom called me the next day crying and said not only did she have visual hallucinations, she had auditory hallucinations and olfactory hallucinations, which are smells that aren't there. By the way, um, olfactory hallucinations are a brain tumor unless, unless proven otherwise. So I asked Mom to get the proper workup done, and she did. I said, if, there's, if it's completely negative, come back and see me. And she had everything done, the scans and the this and the that and the this. Everything was negative, and Alyssa was getting worse. We um, started, we, because I worked with a, um, a pediatric integrative uh, medicine doctor, uh, started working on her gut, making sure that, you know, sealing her gut and doing exactly what we often do. Okay, and when it came time, we did some testing. We found out that Alyssa had Lyme anaplasma, HHV6, which is a herpes in the brain, and um, yeast. And, of course, the other doctor wanted to put a PIC line in her and um, use rotating antibiotics. And I said, um, because I, I just fell in love with this little girl, I said, <laughs> not on my watch or not. Okay, And I used a different substance for about six weeks and eradicated everything, and all the hallucinations went away. It's about that time that we got the 23andMe. Don't ask me why we did it backwards, okay? And frankly, when the 23andMe came out, Sterling called me up and was like all kinds of upset because this little girl had a profile that looked like she should be up on a bell tower with a rifle, okay? It was like, it looked like somebody took red and just, you know, painted it all over everything. And I said, she's fine. She said, what? I said, she's fine. Okay, and guess what? She's still fine because it fixed the body, not the polymorphisms. 
And when I lectured about this in Louisiana, uh, we I presented this particular case in this way, showed everybody at the end the polymorphisms, and all shaking their heads, saying she couldn't possibly be well. They didn't know that Alyssa was sitting in the back because she hadn't come down to meet me, and I had her come up and say hi to everybody. And Alyssa is now almost 12, and she is doing just fine because we looked at everything, the whole body, not just the polymorphisms. Polymorphisms give you indicators. They're not the whole story. So anyway, um, as usual, consults for if you need somebody to help you uh, interpret the um, 23andMe in view of your entire condition can be obtained from myself or Sean Bean. Okay, our contact information is info at bioindividualized medicine, bioindividualizedmed.com. Um, 610-449-9716. Cynthia Smith, info at lifezonewellness.com. Our, te- our telephone number is right there. Some practitioners will uh, allow... I'm sorry, my mouth is not working. Some practitioners will offer a complimentary 15-minute get acquainted session to see if they can help you. I know I do that. Uh, the other practitioners, some of them do, some of them don't. Okay, and you should contact the um, practitioner individually to see if that's available because then you have a little time to ask questions, uh, see if you like the person. And I like to do this because I get to look at somebody and say, yes, I can help you. No, I can't, and I feel good about it. So it is Q&A time. Uh, You can either write questions on the chat room here or if you'd like to call in, uh, the number is 646-595-2277. I've got plenty of time. I kind of blew through that a little bit fast, but I wanted everybody to have time to call in. So please um, don't make me feel lonely and uh, start asking questions. I know you're out there. I can hear you breathing. Okay, looks like I'm going to have to, um, I'm reading what um, what Sterling wrote and what um, Sean was writing to me during the, uh, and my little, tri- my little diatribe, and um, they're talking a lot about oxalates. Again, we're going to have uh, a special guest talking about oxalates uh, in the next couple of weeks, so that's going to be a full program just on this important subject. And here comes our first question. Hi, nice person in the 336 area code. Are you there? Uh, yes. This is Dr. Armin. What can I do for you? I got one question for you. I did the um, MTHFR support band, you know, Sterling's. Also yep. did the genetic genie. Mm-hmm. And on, on the first page, the CYP <laughs> 1B1, L43V on Sterling's app is green, but on the genetic genies it's red. Is there a reason for these discrepancies? Well, the um, there shouldn't be discrepancies, quite frankly. Um, the individual who did genetic genie did a wonderful job in a time when there was no uh, there was nothing out there that anybody could access at a reasonable price. Um, except for one other practitioner who was charging a lot of money. 
Uh, the program that um, Sterling built, and I know who built it and how they built it, uh, is more accurate. So if I if I had them both in front of me, <clears throat> and you ask me, you know, which one I should believe, I'm going to go with Sterling's app. But more than that, I'm going to look at the um, particular polymorphisms and ask questions about the polymorphisms and what pathway they happen to be in and say, you know, are you having problems with this, 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 or this? Because that's, that's the real harbinger. That's what's going to tell you what's really going on. Okay? So if I were going to, if, to answer your question, if I were going to make a decision, I would go with Sterling's app because it's constantly updated, okay, and it's more recent. Uh, and um, Genetic Genie, again, is wonderful. The, the gentleman who did it did a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job, but I don't know that it's been updated on a timely, ba- on a timely basis. Yeah, I have heard. I I've heard yeah, go ahead. I was just wondering because, you know, there are, on, when you own some blogs, they talk about that some of these, when they're even green, could be sped up. And I was just wondering if that was one of them that might be kind of like, uh, well, it could be green, but it's sped up. So they did theirs in red, showing there is a problem with it, you know. But so mine's green, well, with, you know, the gene with GG. Remember, remember, we talked about it's it's more the expression of the gene, whether it's green, yellow, or red. Okay, if you have a, a problem in the area, okay, that may talk about genetic expression, but. Um, I wouldn't put too much too much weight on uh slight discrepancies. Well, okay, and, and again you look at the whole thing and the discrepancies that you're looking at become less of an issue. But again, if you if you were gonna ask me which one which one I would defer to, it's gonna be Sterling's app by virtue of the fact that it's newer and it's consistently updated and um even when twenty three and me changed their chip Okay, they made sure that she made sure that it was as accurate as it could be. You know, and nothing, nothing out there is completely 100% accurate. That's why it has to be interpreted. Okay? Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice person in the 610 area code. This is Dr. Armine. Are you there? Hi, Dr. Armand. Yes, this is Andrea. Um, actually, I grew up in Havertown. live in Philadelphia oh, cool. now. Um, yeah, pretty cool. Um, anyway, wanted to ask you if you could just quickly let me know what we, what is sort of accepted, if anything, because this is all cutting edge, really, but about um, miscarriage and um, any specific MTHFR defects. Or, you know, Ask the question again, please. Um, I guess the question is what what do we know uh, for sure is a correlation between uh, miscarriage or persistent miscarriage and NPHFR issues? As far as I know, okay, there there is a correlation uh, that's been fairly well researched, and um, it's not a, a there are. A bunch of people who are a whole lot better at it than I am, but um, MTHFR by itself uh, creating uh, miscarriages, I think, is not as exacting as a combination of polymorphisms that go into clotting and um, affect hormonal balance and so forth. 
I think the combination of them plus the NCHFR, you know, um, will create a situation where you may have persistent miscarriages. And remember, persistent miscarriages, before you start blaming it on NCHFR, you have to look for physical things. Sure. Okay? Um, I mean, but if you rule the rest of them out, okay, you still, and you have MTHFR plus all these other things, you're still going to work with the person's body in the same manner. In other words, you're going to decrease inflammation. You're going to um, stabilize their their ability to conjugate hormones and uh, metabolize hormones, which is what's going to give the person the ability to create the uh, the bed inside the uterus and so forth and so on and so on and so on. It's not just MTHFR, but methylation, the ability to uh, create methylfolate, um, the ability to uh, conjugate methyl B12 and so forth is a good part, is a important part of uh, your general health and uh, your reproductive health. Okay. Okay, thank you. And did I get, did I get it? <laughs> Do yeah, I get an I A? Was just curi- no, no, you get an A. I, I was <laughs> looking for something general like that. And my, my curiosity... Also, is because there seems to be a lot of um, people practicing or functional medicine practicing, you know, fun- functional fertility. And I was curious if, you know, since you do this kind of education, if you saw if, if they're sort of treating, you know, and, and um, you know, based on maybe um, these de- defects in a number of different places, like you mentioned with clotting and whatnot, um, if they're actually treating with some supplements for fertility, just like they do, put you, you know, they might put you on the paleo diet, they might make sure you don't have you know uh, here's, any, I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked it in that question I'm glad you asked it in that way okay um, there are a lot of people and, and I mean no disrespect to anyone okay um, there are a lot of people who practice functional something functional medicine functional right, fertility right. they're just trying to get into specialties to draw people in who have particular problems uh, as some of them are just following algorithms Okay, and anybody who's following algorithms, you should, you know, stand up, turn around, walk out, okay, because that person is not thinking. But if you have a a good functional medicine practitioner who's looking at the whole body and saying, well, here's a woman who's had uh, consistent miscarriages and we've had nothing, you know, physical that we can point to, you know, uh, and you know all the testing that can be done. And her uh, significant other or her um, spouse, you know, doesn't have... um, you know, sperm motility issues and, you know, yada, 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 okay? And uh, you want to look at the genetics and you want to look at the body itself. And that's when you should start looking at um, not only MTHFR, but all the pathways, especially the uh, electron transport chain and the mitochondria, okay? And looking at why this person may be consistently inflamed, okay? Because that is what, for the most part, creates problems in people, okay, is chronic inflammation. That's, you know, it'll affect receptors. It'll affect various biochemical processes and so forth. So somebody who starts treating everything, not just slapping them on a, on a, on a paleo diet, but actually starts fixing the gut, you know, by, you know, recreating the mucus layer and start, you know, resealing the cells and, you know, starts looking at, um, you know, uh, I'm not allowed to mention the actual names of tests, but looking at the tests where you're looking inside the cells for the various, um, uh, you know, levels of uh, vitamins and minerals and so forth and antioxidants and the antioxidant functions and so forth, looking at the hormonal levels, uh, especially with the more recent, um, you know, more accurate hormonal testing, you can really 
get a good feeling for why that person's body is not working and uh, and treated it appropriately. And when you start treating um, the person's base processes, a lot of times things just get working again, okay, if right. you think about it, okay? I often tell this to my patients with cancer. I don't treat cancer. I treat people with cancer, but I don't treat cancer, okay, because, God forbid, I don't want to get shot on my way out, okay? But I always tell people, I said, you know, no, seriously, come on, really. You know, there's, there's too much money in, in keeping pantry again. That's why there's no cure, right? Uh, anyway, you know, I always tell people, I say, look, you know, think about a lake, okay? And you have this lake, and the sun's beating down on it. It's got, you know, no, no flow in there, and, you know, the pH is horrible, and it's just producing mosquitoes like crazy. You know, you don't want to get near it. The mosquitoes are the cancer. You have, you know, a lot of people treating allopathic, medical, and alternative, whether it's pharmaceutical, herbal, or whatever, are trying to kill the mosquitoes constantly. And they're oh, killing yeah. the mosquitoes, and they're killing the mosquitoes, and they're killing the mosquitoes. Well, thank you. Okay, I appreciate you killing the mosquitoes, but you're not going to fix anything unless you start getting some, you know, rivers or something into that lake, getting it oxygenated, you know, maybe providing some shade, maybe putting some fish in there to eat that, you know, that that larva. Okay, and once that lake is healthier, okay, it's not going to produce as many mosquitoes, and then you're going to win the war, okay, whether you're using herbals or anything else, that's when you're going to win the war. And and that's just a cancer example. That is the same thing with all kinds of physiology, okay? If you've checked out all the obvious, when you rule out the impossible, whatever's left, however improbable, must be the truth. Okay, so if you fix the person's or work with the person's base physiology and get things working again, okay, and it's not just the genetics, you have to look at it and truly holistically, that person's going to be able to conceive again, assuming that, you know, there isn't something wildly differently wrong. But guess what? You've ruled out everything else. So whatever's left must be the truth. Let's just get their body working again. And just because they have MTHFR does not mean you smack them with, you know, you know, all kinds of methylating products because that's, again, not the way to do it, okay? You get rid of the inflammation. You start supporting their body, and guess what? Things will simply start to work. And then if you, you know, if you determine the need to give them methyl B12 because you have testing that says, oh my God, this, the B12 is just not getting into the cells, you know, let's uh, give her some you know, lithium orotate and some whatever, methyl B12, hydroxycobalamin, adenosylcobalamin. There's a lot of choices. Okay. You can get the person's body to work. And once that person's body starts working, that's when they're going to be able to conceive, don't you think? And hold on to that baby. Yeah. It, it's a thought. Okay. It's, a, it's a different way of looking at it. But uh, I, when you're assessing a doctor treating someone, if they're looking at everything, fine. Okay, and if they're starting to treat the obvious stuff, and you'll you can hear it just by the way the person's being treated, you'll do um, that is a good doctor. But if it's just somebody, you know, waving the methylation flag, which I I detest, I apologize, but I detest it. People waving the methylation flag. Hey, I do MTHFR, um, and you know I practice functional something something something. Um, they should be doing what other fertility specialists are not doing, which is fixing the right. body, not forcing not forcing the body to do something. You take Clomid, you're forcing the body to do something. You fix the body's ability to do something in the absence of pathology, it should work. Okay? It's, gee, it kind okay, of makes great. sense to me. No, well, thank totally. you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, bye-bye.
the nice person in the 519 area code. Are you there? Yes, him. Hi, Jess. In um, chronic fatigue, how do you evaluate and treat um, cell wall stability and mitochondrial function? If you could just no. give me some ideas, that'd be great. Oh, sure, sure. Well, there's a couple of there's. Um, let's talk about cell wall stability first. Cell wall integrity is um, is a not as hard as you think to fix. Okay, it is a matter of getting phospholipids into someone, and the easiest way is with, is with lecithin. Uh, there's three kinds of lecithin, sunflower lecithin, soy lecithin, and egg lecithin, okay? The lecithins are a um, the fatty portion, and they can contain phosphatolethanolamine, phosphatolcholine, um, phosphatolinositol. And um, you're fairly safe with most people using sunflower lecithin because most people haven't been exposed to sunflower and they don't have a sensitivity to it. Some people do. Some people have antiphospholipid syndrome, but I'm talking about the majority of people. Uh, the utilization. Is it an oil? Sorry, is it an oil? It's, it's, a, it's part of it's part of the fat, it's the fatty portion of uh, of the sunflower oil. Yeah, and um, the utilization of animal fat. Okay, I know that we've. Um, shied away from animal fat because, you know, cholesterol, which I think is bupkis myself. But we need, uh, you know, we need animal fats, not a ton, but animal fats to help heal ourselves. And we've been doing it since time immemorial, and our bodies are used to it. So, you know, although coconut oil and MCT oil and all these other oils are really great, they don't have all the components to help heal the cell walls. Yeah, you also need a little bit of arachidonic acid, okay, which is what you get from proteins. And I know that arachidonic acid has been demonized, okay, because when you have a lot of it, it'll go through one of the prostaglandin pathways that creates um, inflammation, okay. But we still need a small amount of it in order to uh, have our cells fix themselves. And, and frankly, um, a little bit of protein every day of, of uh, animal-based protein is the way that that, that is done. There's very few uh, supplements that have arachidonic acid in it. Okay, uh, it, that's just a cell wall. If you're fixing a gut, and, and I have several podcasts that will show you how to fix a gut. You know, it's just a matter of adding um, mucigenic um, herbs to create a mucus layer. And then when you get a nice mucus layer going, then putting probiotics in because that's where the, that's where the biota live in the mucus. Okay, uh, if you fix, uh, if you concentrate on a leaky gut, okay, the leaky cells, you're going to fix all the cells in the body. Okay, because I have been focusing on that for for about oh eons, but obviously it's not not enough, and I haven't heard of nutrigenic well, herbs, so that's good to know. But. It's a good point. That's a that is usually the thing. That's where the glitch is where I see most people when I ask them, are you, um, you know, what are you, they'll say, yes, I've been fixing my gut, and I'll ask them what, and I'll usually hear that they haven't been putting something to create mucus. These are these are the prebiotics people talk about, okay, but oh, okay. the prebiotics, when you buy probiotics with a prebiotic, there isn't enough in there to create the actual layer. So what creates that kind of layer? Things like uh, marshmallow root, although they may contain oxalates, uh, slippery elm, uh, some of the other some of the other substances are, are phytoestrogens like uh, ground flaxseed, ground chia seed, ground um, uh, guar gum. Okay, these are all things that will yeah. create a really really good mucus layer. And, and you know, talking about either like two to four tablespoons a day, 
you know, and in a few weeks you'd be surprised. Okay. Okay. And the probiotics you put in, people say, oh, I react to my probiotics. Well, it's because they're going through the leaky gut and becoming antigens. So you stop the probiotic and then reinitiate it after you've built a nice mucus layer up. And it's, uh, like I said, I have, um, you know, you're welcome to it. If you can't find it on my website, just let me know. You know, email me. I'll be happy to send you the um, um, the treatise on uh, on how to repair a um, GI tract. It's not a secret. I wrote it. I wrote it for everybody to to read. Okay, now, uh, in concerning the mitochondria, okay, yeah. um, you almost can you can almost presume that somebody has mitochondrial dysfunction because the fix for it is coenzyme Q10, uh, NADH, maybe some alpha lipoic acid, um, riboflavin 5-phosphate. Uh, there are a couple of products out there that um, that make a good combination. But coenzyme Q10 is ne- is needed to get the products into the mitochondria, okay? And those other products I mentioned, like the NADH, um, are needed to help get the uh, oxidized glutathione out of the pathways, okay? It would be great if you could use IV NAD, but... Um, it's hellishly expensive, to be perfectly honest. Okay, uh, but depending on the individual, they might do what they might do well with, um, like I said, high dose vitamin uh, IV vitamin C, high, with combined with multi-minerals, combined with B complex, and so forth, and they're going to get the same effect. And, and Been also, there, done that for four years, and that didn't work. Okay, time. all right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you, I'm, I'm talking in a vacuum, dear. You know, I know. Just, I understand. Uh, no, I speak, understand. You know. I, yeah. But no, no. I'm, hap- the, I'm happy the, to be. The NADH and the the uh, riboflavin five phosphate. I haven't tried that. So. You know, in, and if you think about it, when you have to make a decision for yourself, okay, you always think about the risk benefit factor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if there's no risk, and there's a probability of benefit, it's worth trying. Okay. Yeah. And whatever the bottle says. And this is, I don't mind saying this to the whole world. The bottle directions on most vitamins are usually half the therapeutic dose. Okay, that's how they protect themselves. So if you use half of that to begin with, you know, low and slow is the way to go. You can build yourself up and then see what happens. Now, you get a negative reaction, you know the substance you're using, you back off on it, you should be fine. The worst thing if you have a chronic condition to do is take combined products. Because you never know what you're going to react to. Yeah. You know, and if you need, you know, guidance in going along this particular path, you know, this is, it sounds like you've done your research and you're doing, you know, you've done very well, but uh, it sounds like you might need um, some help um, figuring out the path that you need to go. But try these other things. Yeah. You know, be happy to help. You know, you can contact myself or any of the people that have mentioned um, very well trained in this area. And um, you know, there are a lot of other considerations, but those are some of the some some ideas and some ways of going so about much. it. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Welcome. I appreciate it. Take care. Mm, bye bye. Bye. Nice person in the eight four seven area code. This is Dr. Armine. Are you there? Yes, hi. Hi, Dr. Jess. Um, I'm in the early stages of trying to trying to learn all this. I did get my testing done through 23andMe, and I used um, Sterling's, Sterling's app to get uh, my report. And I noticed, you know, going through your presentation that there's um, there are a lot of um, 
genes that are not, you know, that my test doesn't include. So I'm, right. my question is, how, how crucial are those big pieces of the puzzle that are missing? Thank that you, need thank, to be thank you so much for answering that, for asking that question. I was hoping somebody would call up and ask that question. <clears throat> Let me explain to you why there, why those holes are there. Okay, um, our our famous FDA. Okay, um, went after 23andMe, as we all know. Okay, and 23andMe at the time was using something called a V2 chip. It's a computer chip that read the uh, polymorphisms, and it was reading 500,000 of them. Don't ask me why, but they made them start using a different chip, which made would only allow them to read 250,000. And I think, just just me, they went in and picked picked and chose what they pulled out. What they didn't realize was the way that we understand this and the way that we teach it is by looking at pathways. So even though you may pull out several things, I can still see the pathway, okay, okay. and get a good feeling for if that pathway is functioning or not. And I realized that the glutathione pathway, you know, that we talked about, there's like big holes and there's not enough of everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you have a really mucked up mitochondrial pathway, I'm still going to see it, even though I don't have as many. If you have a mucked up uh, uh, M, you know, methylation pathway, there's still enough MTHFRs and MTRs and so forth to say, hey, let me ask this lady the questions. And if the, she answers the questions the way I think, then I know that that pathway is a problem. Okay. okay. Yes, we're working with slightly less information, but they didn't count on people like us that <laughs> didn't get scared about the lack of one or two or three or four, but were still able to look at things, you know, in patterns, ask the questions, and determine whether something's expressing or not. You know. Very good. So there's nothing wrong with what went down, except that there's slightly less information, but the information is still there. It does require interpretation, but you know, just kind of back up, go through my, go through the um, uh, the thing I just went through uh, because it'll be on the archive. Go mm -hmm. through it again and look at it. Kind of just look at it and okay. I only have instead of having 20 MTHFRs, I've only got 10. But how many of those are, you know, polymorphism? And do I have XX and X? And let me, you know, every everything I went through, I kind of asked the questions. If you had this, if you have this, you know, is that expressing or not? You know, and you'll be able to answer yeah. a lot of questions for yourself. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Nice person in the 256 area code. Are you there? Yes, I am. I hear you breathing. <laughs> I had a question. I had a question um, in the, um, on the GID... One and two. I'm sorry, GAD? Um, that's right. Mm -hmm. Okay, go ahead. Okay, um, you were you were you, you were speaking of if you um, if you had um, you know mostly the um, yellows that you would tend to possibly go towards the anxiety and if you had yeah, the red. Well, yeah, I yeah. Okay, ask your question, then I'll explain it. Go ahead. Okay, I guess what I really want to know is there's 13 of them. Mm -hmm. I have two reds and a yellow. Okay. Can can like can you tell me um, the probability of my having 
issues with anxiety okay. and depression from that. Yeah, yes, I can. And I'm so glad. I'm, I, what's your name, dear? Your first name? Cindy. Mm-hmm. Cindy. Oh, that's my sister's name. That's cool. Uh, Cindy, I, I again, uh, like I told the last person, I'm so glad that you called. I'm so glad you asked that question in that manner. Okay, because it gives me the opportunity to bring something that usually makes people very, very, very skittish. Okay, uh, to light. Now, uh, you have one red, one yellow amongst that whole sea of GAD uh, SNPs. The questions I would ask of you. I have two red and one yellow. My apologies. Okay, two red and one yellow. Mm -hmm. Okay, the questions I would ask of you um, is, is if you didn't have any issues, I would ask, is there um, serious mental illnesses in your family? You don't need to answer me. Okay, because it's a mm-hmm. private thing. Okay, if they're, um, you know, if your, if your mom or your dad um, had um, problems that, you know, when we were younger, they kind of hid those things. Or, but you know, as you got older, you realized that that was, you know, some bipolar disease or or something to that effect. And your um, Let's say your grandmother or your sister, or your brother, and had these had these things. Then, um, then the probability is a bit higher. Okay, uh, if no one in your family has any issues, okay, mm-hmm. uh, and your children don't have any issues like that, okay, your probability is quite low. Okay, now remember, uh, we're talking about uh, the conversion of glutamate to GABA. So. When you talk about anxiety disorders, it could be just excitation. So if you somebody tends to be on the a little bit on the nervous side, if people on the OCD-ish side, people are um, who are um, not paranoid but tend to be a little bit jumpy and a little bit, um, you know, uh, gee, you know, I, I don't like the way my friend looked at me and this and that and this and that, you know, uh, if. Mm-hmm. If that prob- if that's there, the question is, you know, why is that person's excitation up? Okay, and that's what you should attend to. Okay, so <clears throat> when we're talking about the uh, paranoia, paranoia is usually a little high dopamine. Okay, and paranoia, I'm not talking about the, you know, going out and getting um, aluminum foil and covering the windows and making a little hat so the CIA can't listen to your thoughts. You know. <laughs> That's that's the bad paranoia. Okay, the good paranoia is when, you know, your your husband or your friend looks at you and says, "I know what that look means," and that's not what it is. Where you're kind of arguing in your head, you know, and you have these, uh-huh. you kind of, and then you know, you walk over to the person, you smack them. What was that for? You said this. I'm like, I, I wasn't anywhere near you, you know, and uh, or you're, you know, oh, I'm constantly obsessing about this, that, or the other thing, and they're little things. Um, that is in the realm of a little high dopamine. <clears throat> I'll give you a little uh, little clinical pearl. If uh, at some time in your life you smoked marijuana and with one joint you just didn't like it because it made you feel horrible, okay, that meant that your dopamine is normally high. It's on the higher edge because uh, marijuana raises GABA and it raises dopamine. GAB is what makes the marijuana, oh, yeah, wow, you know, makes everybody relax. But if your dopamine's high, Okay, to begin with, you're gonna you're gonna feel horrible with that very first joint, or, you know, that's why when people smoke a lot, they get paranoid. Okay, but uh, if you wanted to know if you were gonna lean towards those anxiety disorders, that would be one question you could ask somebody, 
and they'd say, yeah, it's a, that really made me feel terrible, you know, and you know that they have a tendency towards excitation to begin with. So what you do with somebody like that is you start exploring the reasons for the excitation and start, you know, you know, that's what you treat, okay? But if there's no, but in answer to your question, just to come full circle, if there's no one in your family with serious mental illnesses and no one upstream or downstream, then your probability of having is very, very low, okay? The only way you would get something like that is if you really, really had a lot of illness that uh, caused a lot of traffic in the pathways and that may be one of the possible expressions. But, you know, usually history will tell you, and family history will tell you how things will express. There's a high degree of serious mental illnesses in the family, and you have a, um, you know, you have chronic Lyme, you have chronic strep, you have something that's really exciting your system, then I'd say that you're in a higher probability set um, to have those problems. But it doesn't sound to me like you do. Um, no, we've we've got you know we had um, some some anxiety we have some anxiety things. Mm-hmm. I had horrible PMDD. I have mm-hmm. you know there there's definitely some stuff going on, but it's not it's not any of the serious things. PMDD uh, is a combination usually of those GAD sniffs plus the estrogen dominance, COMT, and everything else, and this still the way you treat it is by um, Working on the um, metabolism of the um, of the hormones, okay, and uh, making sure the person's gut is working well, so they don't engage, they don't get a lot of inflammation and so forth and so on. You know, PMDD is um, uh, for those who don't know is a um, premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, which is a, a rather serious level of PMS. And um, it's the kind where you know the the husband usually takes the kids, you know, camping once. Once a month, you know, baby and everything. Okay, we'll, we'll we'll be back in a week. See you later. <laughs> okay, but um, yeah, for a lot of women, that can be a real bane. And um, the GADs, uh, the SNPs, do not portend, although that is one, maybe one expression. Okay, but again, you don't treat the SNP; you treat the person. And treating PMDD is not um, is not an impossibility. It's something that is, is well within the realm of. Uh, you know, normal treatment, and you can be very, very successful at it. That is just really, really exciting, great news. I have a daughter who's suffering, so I'm really excited about that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, You're most welcome. I hope I was helpful. You were. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, guys, I um, it is 942, and it looks like everybody's getting tired. I know I am. Okay, so I think unless somebody else has a question, I will um, I will uh, log off here, and uh, understand that uh, again that the um, you treat the body, not the snips, and uh, you'll have it mostly. Uh, please go to uh, www.mabin. <coughs> mabim.org uh, to uh, inquire about the seminar. Okay, and if anybody needs um, consultations, they can contact me, they can contact Sean, they can contact Cynthia. Uh, we'll be very happy to help you wade your way through uh, the 23andMe, which can be confusing. I'm looking forward to seeing you all next week when we have Mark Newman, who will be talking about hormones and his special testing 
and it, that promises to be a um, really, really, really um, good lecture. So I appreciate everybody's attention. Um, of course, you can free, feel free to email me at any time if you have uh, other questions. So I'm going to say good night, and you guys have a good week. And remember, we love you here. talking about tonight is just a permutation. It's just another set of data that will help you towards that goal. Please don't accept chronic illness. No matter what the doctors say, no matter what anybody says, you know, keep looking because there are answers out there and there are people who care. You guys have a good week. I'm so much looking forward to talking to you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye.